Lord, we just come before you and ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us into what you would want us to see, and we just thank you for how much you love and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, we're continuing the story of the conversion of Saul. Uh, we left off that he had gotten saved, he had uh, started preaching to the Jews in Damascus, and we left off at uh, verse 22, so we're going to start at verse 23. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him, and they laying await was made known unto Saul, and they watched the gate day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with and he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. All right. So here we have the story of Saul continuing. Um, and it says, after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him in Damascus. He's, he's having, he's preaching in them. Uh, in verse 22, it said, Paul, uh, Saul increased in more in strength and confounded the Jews that dwelt in Damascus, proving that this was the very Christ. And that's going to irritate people because they were losing the arguments and losing people. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that they decided they were going to kill him. Uh, and they were probably looking and charging him with blasphemy in the process of this, you know. But the type of killing does not seem like they were going to take him to court because it says they were laying in wait at the gate. They were waiting for him to leave the city to grab, grab him. Now, I don't know if they were planning to kill him, kill him, you know, kill him in an ambush. They were looking to arrest him. I mean, remember, he came to Damascus with a letter to arrest Christians. So it might very well mean that they were just going to arrest him and send him to Jerusalem to be tried and executed in Jerusalem. They may have been trying to kill him directly. We don't know, but the plan was that he was going to be dead, one way or the other. And this is kind of an interesting thing. When, the, when people start losing arguments, they start becoming violent with people. And we see it even in today's world, you know, uh, when somebody starts losing an argument or a debate, they start name calling, and then it starts getting worse. In our, in our country, we're seeing all kinds of problems and riots happening because they don't have a argument that they can make that will win, so they decide to get violent. But again, it's not something that's new. You know, violence when you're, when you're on the losing side of an argument is not new. It's always happened, and we see it here. Paul is so good at what he does with, with debate. I mean, he was trained by 
one of the best teachers of all, you know, of all of Israel's time, the number three greatest teacher. And he's able to make these arguments so strong that they decide, well, we can't, we can't out-argue him. We're going to go kill him. Uh, we can't argue. We can't out-argue him. So we'll just kill him. And this is something that is interesting. Interesting thought. And their plot got known to the other Christians. And you know, they decide, okay, Paul, you can't go out the gate because they're waiting for you to go out the gate, and they're they're planning to ambush you. And they let him over the wall in a basket. Now this is, this is you've got to figure this uh, story out. Paul comes into the city being led blind, <laughs> and now he doesn't even get to walk out of the city. He goes over the wall in a basket. This, this man is being humbled in a great way. He leaves Jerusalem. He's leaving Jerusalem on a horse, and that's a big deal. I mean, we don't, we don't really think about it, but most you had to be very wealthy to ride a horse in their day. Most people rode donkeys or walked. Saul of Tarsus leaves Jerusalem riding a horse, enters it being led by his hand because he's blind, and leaves the city of Damascus in a basket over the over the wall. Uh, he, is, he is being moved down and God is trying to get him to realize that he is nothing. That Saul is nothing. And God will do this to us if we think highly of ourselves and we get all proud. God will knock us down a few notches and make sure that we're not something special. And so this is what happens to him. And so they let him down and in verse 26, it says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem. Now remember, last week we talked about how in Galatians, Paul tells us that he spent three years in Arabia after his salvation. We do not know, did he go there before he started preaching in Damascus? Did he go there after he was let down by a basket? And then Jerusalem. We knew, no, before he gets to Jerusalem, he spends three years in Arabia being taught. By the Holy, directly by the Holy Spirit. So there's a period here between when this story starts and, this, and, and verse 26 of, of three, uh, three years, somewhere in that, in that vicinity. All right? And it says, When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself with the disciples, but they were afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. What this means is he tried very hard to join the disciples. Now, remember, he has been directly responsible for arrests in Jerusalem. He was the overseeing Sanhedrin representative at the stoning of, of Stephen. And now all of a sudden, three years later, he's coming back to Jerusalem and saying, you know, I'd like to become part of your group. <laughs> I've been bad, but I'm really good. And now, you know, and they don't trust him. And rightfully so. We probably wouldn't have trusted him either. You know, uh, yeah, you're, you're coming in. You want to just see who's, who is, who's believers and who's all. And you're looking to arrest all of us in one fell swoop. You know, you're, 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 you're a spy. Yes, it's been three years. And we've been hearing rumors of, of all of what's going on you know, in Damascus. But we don't trust you. 
And this is something that is really hard for us as Christians at times. When somebody gets saved and has their life totally changed, do we trust them enough to say, yes, we're going to put our hope in you? Ideally, we should, because God does miraculous changes in people. But in this particular case, it's hard. It's hard to say, yes, we're going to trust this man who had letters to arrest Christians. Yes, he's been gone three years. Yes, we've been hearing that he's been converted. But, you know, this is, remember, the disciples are still here. The church is being rebuilt. But remember, before this happened, they got scattered. But the disciples remained in Jerusalem. So the, the the 11 leaders of the church are still in Jerusalem, and they're kind of look, looking at, uh, this man's going to come in, and he wants to know where we're at so we can be arrested. So there's a lot of distrust here. And, you know, and he's feeling the hardship of all of this. He has been miraculously saved. He has been preaching in Jesus' name. He has been taught by God about the gospel message in the Old Testament, and the disciples don't trust him. And, you know, he probably understands that they don't trust him and, and why, but it's disappointing. And this is the problem when somebody really truly gets saved and they're not trusted by individuals in the church. It can, it can really hurt that person in a great way. And this is why we need to be able to listen to the Spirit and say, God, this person seems to be changed. Am I going to, am I going to step out? And we know reputations. Reputations are hard to get over. And people need to be able to trust that God is in charge of that person's life and changing them. And verse 27, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and besought and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, how he had spoken unto him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas took the chance to get to know Paul. Because you know he didn't just go grab Paul and drag him in. He went in, talked to him, uh, got, to, got to know the message, got to hear his testimony, got to, you know, probably communicated with Damascus and said, you know, tell me about what he did and how he confounded the, the Jews in there. But he took the time to reach out to Saul. He put his life on the line. And this has been the history of the church over many, many generations. The church oftentimes takes the initiative to take their life in, in hand. The, the church will go into places where uh, diseases are running rampant to witness. They will go into the inner city to, to preach the gospel message. They will reach out to the people that do not aren't loved by the world. Churches have gone into the leper colonies to preach the gospel. They have gone, they have grabbed hold of orphans and made orphanages. They have created hospitals. They have reached out and done and reached out to people who do not, are not loved by the world. And they're going, and this is interesting, the church reaches out to those who get nothing back in the, by the world standards. When they go out to the leper, the leper colony can give them nothing. 
The leper colony has nothing. You reach out to orphans. What are orphans going to do for you? Nothing. You know, what are, what are the sick that you build hospitals going to do for you? Nothing, really. Now, they might, you know, get, once they're healed, you know, once, once they grow up, you know, they might get something back. But the goal is just to reach out to those who cannot give back. And that's exactly what Jesus said. You know, go out to the poor, go out to the hungry, go out to those who need and trust him to deliver. And this is what Barnabas do. And he says, I'm going to take my life in my hands and I'm going to go see Paul or Saul at this time and talk to him, fully expecting that he might get arrested in the process. But he is convinced by the testimony of Saul that he has changed. He is convinced when he hears about the, the preaching that he had done in Damascus that he has changed. And he is now boldly taking him to the apostles. And I'm sure he didn't just walk up and say, you know, here, I'm bringing, bringing salt. But he probably went to them first and said, he has changed. We need to give him his chance. You know, and he's, he is champion, championing Paul or Saul to the... Well, because he's going to be Paul in the next chapter. Uh, championing Paul to the disciples that he is... This man has changed. He is no longer the same man that, that rode out of Jerusalem. He's no longer the man that stood at Stephen's execution. And he brought him in. He told them all about Saul's life and change in Christ. And, you know, this is something that is hard. It is hard when somebody converts to really say, this person has changed. And any of us who have been converted and we know how our family reacts to us. Uh, yeah, right, I know who you are. I, you, I, I don't know what game you're playing. I, you know, you, you'll never change. The alcoholic or drug user that gets changed, you know, everybody's always waiting for them to fall flat on their face. The gospel message is one that people are going, yeah, well, I'll wait and see. Prove to me that you are a new creation. Prove to me, and this is tough. And once he got in with them, verse 28 says, and when he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Seems like everywhere Paul went, even in his early days, people wanted to kill him. Uh, and all through his ministry, he's going to be chased out of towns. He's going to be... He's one town. He's he is stoned. He's, you know, he's chased out of town. They give him a hard time, which talks about how bold and how strong he was as a debater. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because historically they tell us that Paul was a short, kind of fat guy with a squeaky voice, <laughs> which means that doesn't go well for debaters. But everywhere he's going, he's winning the arguments because his content of his argument is so strong. He knows his Bible. He understands all the Messiah, the, the Messianic prophecies, and he can present those in such a strong way and show how Jesus fulfills all of those. And everywhere he goes with the Jews, they want to finally get rid of him because he is challenging them. You know, he is telling them, especially in Jerusalem, this man who you murdered 
was the Messiah. And it's very personal to them. It's going to be personal to all Jews everywhere that the, the Messiah was killed by the Jews. But in Jerusalem, it's a big deal. They're the ones that were yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. So when he comes up and says, this was the Messiah, and here's all the verses for it, it's going to irritate them completely. And he's, tested, he's disputed with the Grecians, the Hellenist Jews, the ones that will think that they are very good at debating, and he's winning that debate. So they decide that they want to kill him. All right? Uh, I'm sure that the Sanhedrin was also not very happy with him either. Here's one of their own that is now preaching Jesus. And, but they're not going to go after him because he's one of their own so much. But they get the Grecian Jews. And then it says in verse 30, And when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him back to Tarsus, his home. They sent him out to the coast and sent him up, up north to, to go back home. All right. So now this is two cities in a very peri short period of time that Saul has been, well, one he was snuck out of over the wall. And we don't, it doesn't tell us how he got him out of this one, but they, they took him out and sent him back home. Now, this is going to be what happens to Saul for all of his life. Everywhere he goes, people are wanting to kill him. And this is kind of, a, you know, I don't know how this would feel to, to be... Everywhere you go, somebody wanting to kill you. I don't know that that's the way I would want to be. But you know, it's not uncommon. You know, Jeremiah, everywhere, every time he opened his mouth, was thrown into prison and threatened with death. Uh, he's not the only prophet that was threatened with death. Pretty much every time they opened their mouth against the king, the kings would throw him into prison or threaten him for death. You know, for death. Elijah has been told, I'm going to keep, you know, keeps getting told, I'm gonna, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you. He's in hiding for several years, for three and a half years he's in hiding because he said to Ahab, it's not going to rain until I speak and Ahab's trying to arrest him and kill him. Jezebel tries to kill him on several occasions. You know, it's not uncommon for a person of God to have their life threatened. Joseph has dreams that he's, you know, that he's arrogantly, I mean he's pretty arrogant when he's telling his brothers you're going to bow down to me, especially when they're 10 older brothers <laughs> and you know and they tr they they initially want to kill him and then at the last moment decide to sell him off as a slave it it is a very interesting thing how god's righteous people get treated by the worldly people and it's not uncommon for the death martyrdom has been the the main aspect for christians around the world for for millennia now uh, from the very beginning they paid the price of being righteous being called by God and we are so fortunate in America that we haven't had to pay with our lives so far that might change here in the very near future things may change that we may have to go into prison we may have to pay with our very lives there's a lot of movement toward Muslim rules and stuff going on in our country. And if and when they finally get power, they won't be kind to Christians. They never have been in any country, and it won't be kind in this country. But we're seeing 
the tide turn against Christianity even without that movement. And it won't be long before prison is going to be the, the aspect of what we're facing, if not worse. But it is common all through God's working with people. His people have been threatened with prison. His people have been threatened with uh, life and death. Every one of the disciples, except for John, died a martyr's death. No, there's always been more non-believers than Christians. Non like, now. like now. Just and just like in America, many people claim to be Christians who aren't. And in the in the New Testament, remember the major in the book of Acts, the major religion at this point in time that they're dealing with is Judaism. And they're not recognizing that the Messiah has come. So there's a, only a small handful. Now there's thousands being saved, thousands being saved. But there's hundreds of thousands of Jews. So a very small percentage of Christians. And all through time, there's always been a small percentage of true believers. Now, even during the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church was the predominant church of the area, the majority of them were not Christians and believers. No, there were no. more yes. more non-believers yeah, than, yeah. and more non-believers than even Jews, because the Jews never went out and, and evangelized. They were just different from everybody else. So you have the Jews, which are in the Middle East, and little pockets around around the the old Babylonian and, and Medo-Persian empires, but they never reached out. So you'd have in each of these cities where Paul goes to. There's going to be pockets of Jews, maybe a thousand, couple hundred to a thousand Jewish people living together in a community out of thousands of people in the town. And then you get, and every one of them aren't even Jewish. You know, they're following idols and worship. And then you get into Europe where the Roman Empire is existing and there's no Christians at all except where the, where the Christians have gone. It's, it's exactly. There's nothing new under the sun. Christianity is still a small percentage of the world's population. Now, it's said to be larger in America, but many people in America really aren't Christian. They say they are. Uh, in the early 60s and the 50s, people would say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm American. And we don't hear that anymore as much. But there was a period of time in the early 1900s to mid-1900s and earlier that just being in America, you assumed that you were a Christian unless you were purposely being in some other religion. Uh, so yes, it's, it's hard to say how many Christians there truly are in America. And this is why we look at it, and it's unfortunate that it's been said that in the average church, the majority of the average church is not saved. And I've been in churches where you look around and you talk to people, and it's like, these guys aren't, don't know what it means to be saved. Because see, I thought maybe there was a lot more Christians in this. Nope. Same, same as today. 
Matter of fact, it's even worse in this point because the church is just starting. Yes, we saw 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. We saw another 5,000. You know, they're up to about 10 or 15,000, and then they're scattered all across the Middle East. You know, that's 10 or 15,000, maybe. Let's, let's say they really got really excited, and there's 50,000 of them scattered amongst half a million people. It wouldn't be much, much population. Uh, and, it, you know, this is always the way it is. God always has dealt with a remnant of people and always will. There will always just be a remnant of people following him. And when we say that, truly following him. Because even in the Jewish countries, when we, before all of this happens, there's still just a remnant of people truly believing in, G, in, in God and worshiping him. All during those years of Judaism, most of the time they worshiped idols. And even when it was going strong, there was only a handful that weren't just doing the, you know, doing the Jewish thing. You know, going to Passover, going to, to uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, doing Rosh Hashanah, all these things. They did it out of ritualism. And that is much of what churches have become even to this day. Many of them just do things out of ritual. This is how we hold service. This is what we do. Uh, this is, you do this, you do that, you do this, and you're a member of our church, and you're a Christian. Well, that's not really what Christianity is all about. Christianity is following Jesus and making him our Lord. And this is the serious thing that we have. It's just, it's not even just saying, Jesus, I believe in you, because Jesus says, you know, to the people, you know, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't die, and he goes, I, depart from me, I never knew you. It is truly putting our faith and trust in him completely. And this is the, the good news. There's always just a remnant. It has been forecasted in the average church, only 10 to 20% of the church is saved. And there's some churches are going to have a lot more where their pastor's teaching the gospel. But I'm, I am not foolish enough to even believe in our church that every single person that comes to our church is saved. And we just have a small group, and it's, we probably have a higher percentage of saved than most. But I'm not going to be saying that everybody in our church is saved. And even in a good preaching, Bible preaching church, there's going to be people who aren't saved. They hear the word every week. They know the word but they don't make the decision. There are some churches where I'd be lucky, you'd probably be lucky to see two or three people saved because their pastor doesn't preach the gospel message. And, you know, and when they will not hear the word of God, the only way they're going to hear it is maybe if they somehow challenge themselves to read the Bible. And there are some churches where they're not challenged to read the Bible. They're not challenged to read the Bible and never read the Bible. The pastor might read one verse and do a message that never talks about that verse. And there's lots of churches like that where nobody is ever challenged to turn to God. And this is the sad thing because we're dealing in a world today where just saying you're a Christian church does not mean anything because you talk to them, they don't believe the Bible, they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, they don't believe he's the way to heaven, and you're going, okay, what... What does it mean to be a Christian in your mindset? You know, Christian is a Christ follower, and you're not saying, you know, and you're not pushing for this. There's a problem. So, yes, even here, and here we're really having the case because it's just getting started. And 
as Christianity grows, Constantine is going to become a, become a Christian and, and he's going to decide that Christianity now is the approved Roman, Roman religion and it's kind of an amazing thing. The day before, when he, when he makes his decree because they were paying the, the, the priests and everything their salary, when he said Christianity is the approved religion, one day they're, they're worshiping Zeus or whatever the Roman god is, uh, Zeus. And the next day, they're worshiping God, God. But they don't change anything in their worship. They just change the name of who they're, who, they're, who they're worshiping. They're no longer worshiping Diana. They're worshiping the God of the Bible and throwing in Mary. And this is the roots of Catholicism, is all of this craziness when they just decided... We're now worshiping Christianity. And they just changed their pantheon to have different names of, and this is where the, the pantheon that they had started becoming the disciples. And the disciples became saints. Well, they did. And that's exactly what happened. And then Catholicism came out of that mesh of, of craziness to build their own religion, which is half Christianity, half whatever else came out of it. And there's a lot of gospel message in, in Catholicism in its early days, and then you pile on all the other stuff that came along with it, which is all about works and all this stuff. And I'm not trying to degrade Catholicism because most of them don't know, most Catholics don't really truly understand all of what their church believes in its roots but it virtually destroyed Christianity in the long run because it got to the place where it was so powerful that anybody that didn't believe them was persecuted. And we see this whole process coming out. And it is hard to follow true worship of God. And even through the Bible, our whole Bible is all about calling people to true worship. And over and over again, calling them to true worship the, even in the New Testament, all the epistles were purify your church. You're, you're going the wrong direction. You're going the wrong direction. Why? Because our sin nature tries to do things our way. We follow God. We seek after God. And then we try to build upon how do I prove that I'm his follower? And we start building a system of works. Jesus died on the cross to cover our sins and he is the only way to heaven and, with on, and only by his grace do we get to heaven. And yet people will go, well, what do I got to do? What do I have to do to prove to God that I love him? Not much, just, to, just accept him. But you know, and we've talked about this. It doesn't mean that good works are bad, but my works have to come out from the inside out. God changes who I am and now I work outward not to try to please him, not even to prove who I am, but because he is changing me. And religion builds a set of rules all the time. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And if we're not careful in the church, we do the same thing. You know, if you really are a good, strong Christian, you'll come to church every time the doors are open. If you're a good Christian, you'll be reading your Bible and read it through every year. And I've got to be careful when I encourage us to read the Bible through every year. I'm going to be careful that I'm not trying to, you know, that people aren't understanding that of this is what you do to be a good Christian. 
Now, I think we need to read the Bible. We need to read the Bible through. But if I'm doing it only because I think that's what it takes to be a Christian, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. It needs to be for honor. Yeah. And it, and it causes growth. You know, the same idea. Why do I come to church? Is it to try to be, you know, God, here's my check marks. I've, got, I've been to church all the time. No, it should be to come and build up the body, be edified by the body of Christ, and to grow and be taught. And if that's our reason for coming to church, then we're coming for the right reason. If we're coming for any other reason, it gets to be hard. Oh, I got to go to church again. You know, uh, you know God, I, it's really hard to go into this church, you know, and I don't really want to go. And if that's our attitude, stay home. You're better off staying home at that point because you're going to church for the wrong reasons. And I love coming to church. There's nothing I would rather do than to be in church. And it's not because I'm the pastor. It's the way I've always been. You know, I want to be taught. I want to fellowship with the body of Christ. And we need to be very careful that we don't turn this into a great big works-orientated thing. You know, God, I read my Bible through. Yep, God, another year I read my Bible through. Yep, God, I made it to every, every message, every service uh, last month. You know, God, keep, 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 a, keep a tally of my, of my good points so that when I get up there, you'll know that I've been honoring you. Not that these things are bad in themselves, but if our motive is wrong, it's not going to help. And this is what's important. And boy, am I way off track here. <laughs> okay. Back to, back to Acts. <laughs> uh, they sent him off in verse 31. Then the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and were multiplied. They sent Saul away. And during this time, it's not mentioned, but there's another new Caesar going in. There's a new, new, new move coming in, and they are, have a period of peace. One thing we want to be careful of, the first century church had a lot of persecution. But they also had periods where there were several decades where they would be at peace and able to grow. And this has been true. For, for the American church, we've had over, you know, almost... Uh, th- two and a half, three centuries of peace for the church. Do you realize how rare that is in church history for the church to have any portion of the church to have that much non-persecution? And now we're going to face the persecution. It's got to come because we're reaching the end times. And the church has really been harmed by the lack of persecution because so much false teaching has come in because of lack of persecution. The persecution makes me think twice, do I want to be part of this group? So on one side, I don't want the persecution and the trials, but on the other side, I'm saying, God, thank you. This will help purify and strengthen the church. Um, when I met people from, from the, behind the Iron Curtain, the Iron Curtain used to be praying when back before, they, before the Iron Curtain came down. They were praying God, we don't understand why the American church has not been persecuted. Bring persecution to them. We're praying for them to not be persecuted. They were praying for us to be persecuted because Jesus said that those who follow me will suffer. And they were looking at the American church saying they don't follow Jesus because they're not suffering. So they were praying for persecution to come to us while we're praying for persecution to stop for them. 
And they, in both sides, were thinking we're being biblical. I think they might have been more biblical than we were. <laughs> All right. Because Jesus said, those who follow me will suffer. And it's always been true that the righteous suffer. So it's kind of an interesting point. You know, we need to be able to change our mindset toward suffering. That if God brings suffering into us, he has a reason for it and he's trying to grow us. And not be fearful of it. Because it's not a fearful thing because God is in charge. Now, do we want to suffer? I don't want to suffer, but you know, at the same point, I realize that God can do lots through that suffering. Could be. Could be. It could also be <clears throat> the whole COVID-19 could, uh, problem with the church shutting down could be a challenge to the church. Are you going to honor God or are you going to honor man? I think it's a pretty big deal to shut down church. And yet many churches are shutting down. And yes, the trials are hitting. There's, there's four or five states in this union that are shutting down churches and, and attacking them. Uh, there in Illinois, the church has been, been attacked over and over again, and they've been threatened with losing their building as a, new, as a, as a public nuisance, that the government was going to come in and destroy their... And the funny thing is, it's a Romanian church, and their pastor had left Romania and said, I've seen this all before. Everything that the government in Illinois is doing to him is exactly what they did in Romania to the churches. And he's going, I've been here before. We are having so much persecution of our churches starting. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, it's really not that bad. California has shut down their churches and finding churches. They haven't, and in San Francisco and, and some of those other areas, they have threatened the churches with the same thing. You continue to meet, we're going to put a public nuisance on you and destroy your building. Not because of the normal thing of bad trash and all that other stuff, but you are defying us, we're going to destroy you. Now, this hand right now it's a handful of states. But you know if they get away with it, it could very much go across the United States. We need to be praying. We need to be praying and preparing our hearts for what's going to come. It will come. Sooner or later, it is going to come. Persecution is going to come because the Bible tells us it will. You know, Jesus is going to return, and I do not believe that he will return before tribulation is hitting the church again. Not the tribulation, but tribulation and hard times and trials are coming, coming to the church before Jesus returns. I firmly believe this. We are going to have trouble. And as I, even as I say this, millions of Christians are martyred every year in our country, in our time. We don't hear about it because the U.S. news agencies will never broadcast it. The Muslim worlds are not going to broadcast it. But millions of Christians die every year from, from, from martyrdom. In the not in the States. Oh. Not yet in the States, in the world, in the world. But it will come to America eventually. It is all around, and we need to be able to understand, we have been so fortunate in America 
to not have to face all this persecution. And it comes from the founding of this country on Christian principles. And our world right now is our country right now and the liberals are denying that we started out as a Christian country even though you can pick up any of the founding fathers booklets and they say the Constitution was made for a moral upright people that are following God's laws and all these different things when they say moral upright people they are talking about a godly people following God's God's word and if we didn't understand that many times they would describe it you know morality only comes through the scriptures they over and over instituted that we started as a Christian country. Then we are falling so far down from what we started. A light shining on the hill to the world. And for centuries, America was leading the world and sending out missionaries and producing Bibles and tracts. The sad news is that more country, um, the United States receives more missionaries now than any other country in the world. These other countries are looking and saying America needs Christianity. Even though we are supposed to be a Christian nation and everybody claims to know Jesus, we have churches on every corner, especially in certain, you know, certain parts of this country. You know, there literally are churches on every corner in the deep south. Every corner you go, there's churches. Sometimes two churches, one on, one on you know, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen four corners you know, having, having churches, but there's churches everywhere. And even in our little area, when I came to move to Kingman, I looked up and there were 30 churches in Kingman. You know, with as small a population as it has, there's 30 churches and there are new churches being developed all the time. And the rest of the world is saying America needs Christianity. Why? Because a church is not necessarily a Christian. And we are, our seminaries have been so polluted with liberal belief systems. We have people coming out of seminaries to be pastors who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. They don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. They don't believe that he's the only way to, to heaven. These are people coming out of seminaries to go teach church, Christian churches, supposedly. Who are teaching them that? And now, what are they going to teach their church? Everything but Christ? I have no idea what they teach. We need to be careful because all denominations are having more and more liberalism coming into their seminaries and more and more trouble with their, their pastors coming out not believing the gospel, which is why all these countries are sending missionaries to come to America to help us become Christian again. But oh, they're very much false prophets. Many of them are very much false prophets, you know, coming out of these seminaries. And this is why it's important that we teach the gospel of Christ and then watch the Holy Spirit multiply. We have many problems in our churches. We have the prosperity gospel that, you know, if you're, if you're saved, everything's going to be good for you. Now, where they get that gospel, I don't know. Yes, I understand. They're, they can pull out the verses, and yes, it is a good life. When you turn to Christ, God blesses, and he makes sure that he, he honors. But it is not all going to be good. Jesus said, you're going to suffer. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. And we will face all of these things. And there's so much 
non-Christian teaching going on in quote-unquote Christian churches that it makes it tough on the Christian churches that keep teaching the Word of God because we even hear it in, in our world. Well, why are you guys you know, so strong on that? Why can't you just agree with the rest of these churches and the rest of our, of our town? You, know, you guys are saying that fornication is a sin. You're saying homosexuality is a sin. You're saying adultery is a sin. These other churches have no problem with it. They've evolved with, with the, the current days. And we're going, well, you know what? God's word has not changed. And this is the key because they, we have so many quote-unquote Christian churches that aren't believing the Bible that they're making it hard on the Christian churches that believe the Bible and the ones that believe the Bible are becoming the minority. Now, again, I don't know what they teach. I don't know why they call themselves Christian if they're not going to teach God's word that it is true. And I've said this over and over. If any part of this word of God is not true, then it is a worthless book. If I have to go through it and pick what's true, what's not true, I don't have a book to live by because I can't trust anything at that point. And that's what many of these guys, these quote-unquote pastors of Christian churches are teaching. Well, I think this part is really true, so we're going to teach it. This part I'm not so sure about. And if you're throwing away any part of the Bible, then you have nothing to stand on. And this is important. They start with Genesis. Well, you know, those first, those first 11 chapters of Genesis, they can't be true because they're just, a, we know they don't, they're not scientific. We know, you know, there's too much, too much supernatural stuff in it, so we'll throw them out. Then they will go to the, the Egypt and say, well, you know, these supernatural things, got to throw them out because God's not supernatural. Somehow they got out, and we're not going to worry about that. They get to Jericho, the wall's falling down. Well, we know that that wouldn't have happened, so... You know, it's just they made it a they, they managed to beat this big city, so they made it a spectacular, and they start throwing out all the miraculous. And you start tearing things apart and ripping it apart and going, what do you believe? If all these other things are not valid, what kind of God are you believing in? I have a God that created the heaven and the earth in six days. Once I say that he can create the heaven and earth in six days, anything else in the Bible is possible. Now, I have no problem with him sending ten plagues on Egypt. I have no problem with him knocking down the walls of Jericho. I have no problem with him kill, you know, using Gideon's 300 to defeat 30,000. I have no problem with an angel killing 187,000 Assyrians in one night. I have no problem with Jesus being resurrected and all the healings that he did. Why? I've got a God that started it all from nothing. If I eliminate that, then I have a problem with everything else. Because my God becomes too small. How big is our God? How powerful is our God? Is so critical. If I can believe that all the rest of this stuff is, is nonsense, I have nothing to stand on. This is the problem of the churches that are denying the Bible as being true. They deny Genesis, but they, they'll try to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. What are they putting their hope on? I don't know. They usually then will deny the deity of Jesus, but they'll still say he's the only way to, only way to heaven. He was a good man who gave us a good example. But he's, and he's also the only way, and then they'll start denying that. 
it becomes critical. If we do not believe the word of God, we have nothing to stand on. And if I'm picking and choosing what I believe in the word of God, then I have made myself God. I am the ultimate authority on what, ha what is true and what is, what is false in the, in the book that is supposed to be true, then I have made myself God. And if I'm God, then I can believe whatever I want. The word of God must be true. It is what we put our entire life on, which is why it becomes critical that we study his word. This is why it's critical that we come to services and learn his word. This is why it's critical for us to read his word daily and let the Holy Spirit teach us because this is what our whole life has to be based on. And anytime I look at it and say, well, God, you know, that's really tough. I don't know if I believe that. I'm in dangerous places. My attitude when I read to God, I go, God, that's really hard to believe, but you, you said it, it's, it's true. God, I really don't understand this, but you said it, it's true. If I take that as my attitude, then the Holy Spirit now works in my life and he starts showing me what is true. And the great news is the Bible always proves itself true. For millennia, people did not believe that David existed. He was the King Arthur of the, of the Israel, Israelites. He, he was the founder, the one that got everything started, but he didn't really exist, at least not in the way that the Bible told us. And they'd even doubted that he existed at all. And only about 60 years ago, they found all kinds of documentation. Archaeologists found all kinds of documentation about King David, who never existed up until that point in time, as far as they were concerned. You know, all through these things, the Bible talks about cities. They go and find the city, and they find the city that they're talking about. We just need to say, God, you are true. It doesn't matter how many people argue about it, how much they say it never existed, God will be proved out in the long run. And all we need to do is say, God, you are true. People in, in the first uh, chapters of Genesis are going, well, you know, Earth's millions and millions of years old. Well, there's no proof for millions of years old. None. No scientific proof for it at all. There is tons of scientific proof for a young earth. The people who believe in an old earth ignore all the other proofs and will try to stand up on things that are not supported for millions of years and because it fits their desire to make man God. And that's all that it boils down to is man is ultimately God in their mindset and they don't want to acknowledge God as God. And we need to always remember, he is God. What he says is true. And you know what? My life has been so wonderful to follow God and to watch him be who he is and see the miracles that he has done in the, my lifetime and to watch him do his work and to see God deliver to see God keep us and just to see what he does. And the one thing I have learned about God over the years is he is so much bigger than I ever thought he was. And even as big as I think he is and have learned that he is, he's still bigger than anything that I, because I've always had a big God and he keeps proving that he's bigger 
than anything that I expect. He's stronger than anything I expect. He is greater than anything I expect. How do we look at God? Are we raising him up that he is so much more magnificent and infinite than we can even imagine? Or are we trying to drag him down to be like us? And you know, this is the crazy thing. We are made in his image, so somehow we try to drag him down to our image instead of trying to excel to be more like him and let him become more and more of who we are and make us more like him, more loving, more kind, more more stable. And our goal, the world's goal, is to drag God down to us and make him like us. And this is what idols do. They raise up an idol and worship an idol, and the idols are always just really strong people, really magnificent people, celebrating some bad portion of man. The fertility gods and goddesses are all about sex. How did you worship them? Orgies. If it was power, you gave up all that was important to you to get the power from from that god. When they worshipped Moloch, they would offer sacrifices of their children, but they would also take their children's bones and bodies and build them into the cornerstone of their building as a sacrifice for success in their businesses. You know, I'm giving up everything. I just want power. This is what happens to the world. And even in our day, people have idols. They may not have gold statue idols, but they have idols. God of pleasure. I just want to do whatever makes me feel good. God of, God of sex. You know, get me into pornography and all the, all the free love that you can give me. The gods of prosperity and, and, and power. I'm going to give up my entire family to, to be good in this business. And they're not actually doing it on purpose, but that's what happens. The workaholic that wants to make it to the top of the company sacrifices his family. Now, they have good measure, you know, in the back of their mind, they're going, I'm doing all of this for my family's benefit. I never see them. They never see me. We don't go on vacations. We don't go anywhere. But all of this is so they can have stuff. And the family's going, well, you know, you can keep your stuff. I want you. And eventually, the family leaves. And they get to the end of their life and they get the stuff that they wanted and they find out it's empty. They get the fame they want and they sacrificed everything for that fame. They sacrifice, you know, and this is what we do in all of those things. We sacrifice our families. We sacrifice everything for whatever it is that we think we're seeking. And we think we're doing it for the right reasons and we find out we've sacrificed our life on the altar to these gods. And we need to be so careful. God says, give everything to me. And he says, sacrifice it all to me. And he gives it back to us. The, the disciples said, you know, Jesus said, if you give up family, you know, you need to give up your family. And the, they said, we have given up all. And he goes, you have not given up anything because I'm going to give you more. The greatest thing about being a Christian is we sacrifice our family on the altar. And then God gives us our, fa- or gives us our direct family. And he gives us a family of God on top of that. The great thing about Christian life is no matter where I go, there's a family. It doesn't matter what church I go to. If it's a good, godly church, there's a family there. And it is wonderful to travel when you're a Christian. Because there's family that's going to love you and care for you no matter where you go. 
And this is the beauty of all of this. We don't give up anything for God, and he gives us so much more in return. We think we're giving up, and yet when he, when he gives and blesses us, we haven't given up anything. And in the long run, we have heaven, which means we really haven't given up anything. And the beauty of all of this is that the church grows. In spite of opposition, the church grows. Matter of fact, most of the time, the church grows more because of opposition. And it's an amazing thing when God, when God allows opposition to come into church, the churches grow. So when some of the fastest growing churches are in, in areas where the life expectancy of a Christian is about six months to a year, they get saved and they're going to be martyred within six months to a year and the churches are growing like wildfire. Why? Because they're ready to take a stand. Most of our churches do not grow because Christians within American churches are not really serious about what they believe. And we need to get serious about what we believe and understand that it's all about Jesus. Not about me, not about what I get, not about what I can get. It's all about Jesus. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto him. So he must be lifted up. Our personalities have to be rejected. Our strong, charismatic leaders need to be rejected. And just the gospel gets lifted. We're going to end there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we know that you are all in all. You died for our sins. You died so that we could go to heaven. And it's only you that gets us there. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this that doesn't know you, that we ask that you will burden their heart, that they will confess and repent of their sins, and they will seek your face and ask for your forgiveness and for you to come into their life and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.